you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in it or turn it on to Psalm chapter 24. If you're using one of those black Bibles, it's found on page 458. That'll, and basically will virtually be there the whole time. Now, I want to start this morning really by asking you to think about three questions, okay? Uh, first, who, should we, who is the God we should thank for our country? Okay, I think, I think we need to think about Who is the God we should thank for our country? Second question, who is the God we should cry out to revive us? And then the third question, does it matter who God is? I mean, does that matter? What I want to do is I want to try to very quickly answer the third question, and then really the rest of our time will be about trying to answer the first two. Okay, so to answer the third question, there was a gentleman by the name of R.C. Sproul. He was an influential uh, philosopher and theologian. He passed away in in the fall of 2017. And he spoke in all kinds of different scenarios and situations. And one time he was speaking and he was asked the question, Dr. Sproul, what is the greatest spiritual need in the world? And he responded by saying, the greatest need is for people to discover the true identity of God. Okay, why? Why is that the greatest need? And his answer was basically because... People need to know who God is so they can make an informed decision about God. I mean, if you're going to follow God or you're going to ignore God or you're going to battle God, it would probably be really a good idea for you to know exactly who it is you're dealing with. I mean, there are times when I've interacted with people and they say, well, I don't want to trust God because He's like this. And I'm like, well, I don't think I want to trust a God like that either. But that may not be the God of the Bible. Now, Dr. Sproul was asked a follow-up question in that same scenario, that same circumstance. He was asked, Dr. Sproul, what is the greatest spiritual need of church people? You know, of people who show up at church on long week, you know, on, well, it's not really a holiday weekend. Having the 4th of July in the middle of the week messes a lot of things up. But, you know, you're, you're supposed to, you know, what about church people? And his answer was this. Discover the true identity of God. Same answer. Well, why do church people need that? Well, his reason was this. He said, because if God's people would truly grasp who He is, it would revolutionize their lives. Knowing who God truly is, folks, literally can have ramifications throughout our lives. We should know that revolutions dramatically change things. And God can do that to us. Because of that, we're actually starting a new series now for the nine weeks sort of of the summer, a nine-week series where what we want to do is looking at nine different psalms, and there's going to be a few different of us preaching from these nine different psalms, trying to offer pictures of what is God like? Who is this God? Because, folks, if He is the one we're gonna, we have to make an informed decision about in terms of who He is so I can really make an informed decision, or if He's also the one who can revolutionize my life, I really need a clear picture of Him. I really need to know who He is. 
So to move and then to kind of try to answer the first two questions, who do I give thanks to? Who is it that I need to cry out to revival for? What I want us to do is looking at Psalm 24. We want to look sort of through the lens of Psalm 24. We want to look at three pictures of God that David offers us to help us see this is who he is. Now, for some of you, it might be so you can make an informed decision about him. For some of you, it may be so that you and I can see how could God revolutionize my life and how should who God is impact me so I am revolutionized. Okay, so three pictures of God. Picture number one. Ruling creator. When I think of God, what should I think of? Well, one of the things I should think of, one of the things I should see of God is He's the ruling creator. David begins Psalm 24 very quickly to get to this point. He says these words, The earth is full of the, sorry, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Okay, David's starting out with a pretty bold claim. He is saying that God owns everything. God's over everything, including us. I don't get to use the word therein very often, but that's us. We are those who dwell therein. That's us. It's saying He's over us. Verse 1 is declaring, it's a statement of God being the owner, God having dominion, God ruling over everything. That's a pretty extreme statement. You say, on what basis is he making that claim? Well, he's making that claim according to verse 2 because he made it all. The claim of I am over all is because I made it all. God is the one that created it. I don't know how many of you get into Canaanite history and all of that, so I'm going to really condense this really quickly. I thought it was really cool, but... It would take way more time, and I've got to pick my wife up at the airport, so I'm on a time clock this morning. But the imagery of Psalm 24, verse 2, is telling us that God is the one that brings order to life. He makes it orderly. But not only that, the imagery of that verse is also hinting at, pointing at, directing us to that this one is truly the ruler. He is over everything. Now, how should that impact us? What difference should it make in your life, in my life, if God is over everything? What what difference does that make? Well, maybe the most obvious impact is it probably should impact how you and I approach life. Kind of like, what is our starting point of life? Genesis 1-1 starts the Bible by saying, in the beginning, God. John chapter 1 verse 1 sort of similarly begins, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's telling us that if God is this ruling creator, that is literally the foundational truth of life. The starting point of your life and my life isn't me, but it's God. Which means God is the one who gives us life. And not only does God give us life, But God also wants to hold us. He is the ruler, which means He's going to hold us accountable for the life that He gives us. That starts to impact us. If He's the ruling creator, then how I live, I'm going to be, I'm given it from Him, and He's going to hold me accountable. Which all of a sudden means 
maybe I need to start to think about how do I spend my time? What am I doing with what time I have? What am I doing? This is really obvious. What am I doing with the money that I have? I mean, if I'm ultimately accountable to God, what am I doing with it? Real quick aside, when, when we lived in Washington State, fireworks have been legal there for a long, long time. Our mild-mannered neighbor would go out and he'd spend like $400 on fireworks, and this was 20-plus years ago. I don't know what that would be in today's dollars. What are you doing with your money? I am not saying you can't buy fireworks. Please don't hear me say that. But what are you doing with that? How are you operating in your relationship, relationships? If you and I are accountable to God, how am I operating in my relationships? And if God really is the starting point of life and I'm accountable to Him, then maybe when it's time for me to make decisions, my wants, my desires, my preferences, they kind of need to be in the back seat. And God needs to be in the front seat. And that's not easy for any of us. But I think if He's the ruling creator, that's where we go. You know, the opening words of the Lord's Prayer, I don't think, are just a model for prayer. They're a model for life. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If He's the ruling creator, that needs to impact me because I'm accountable to Him. Picture number two. Just so you know, picture number two is going to take longer. Picture number three will be short, just to pace everybody, okay? Pacing's important, so I'm just telling you that right now. Picture number two. Not only is he the ruling creator, he's also the holy savior. Okay, where David's going to go is he's the holy savior. Now, if God is, I mean, I want to think about this. If God's the ruling creator, and you and I are accountable to Him for our lives, maybe a question that needs to be asked is, how can I approach Him, or who could actually approach Him? That's really where David goes. That's really where he's going to go. Verse 3 of the psalm, he says he's the ruling creator, and the next place he goes is where? Who shall ascend the holy hill? Sorry, sorry. Who should ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in its holy place? Now, David is writing with an understanding that I think he wants to communicate to us, and that is this. God is not some dude that we're going to cross paths with. You know, like, hey, I was going to say go to Fairway, but you couldn't go to Fairway today. It's closed. But let's say, you know, you're going to go to Walmart. It's not like you're going to run into God walking down the aisle at Walmart. That is not an editorial statement about Walmart. Okay. It is reminding us God doesn't operate on our level. The verse is pointing up, He's up the hill. He's in a holy place. It's saying He's set apart from us. He doesn't operate on our sequence of things. He's literally above and beyond us. So how do we connect with Him? That's why David asked the question. Well, who could enter His presence? Who could approach Him? Look at verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. David says, if you want to know who can approach God, he says, let me tell you who can. 
And so he basically gives us four characteristics. Very quickly, four characteristics. What are they? First characteristic would be this. It's, it's outward obedience. The person who can enter the presence of God is somebody who's been doing what God says. Okay, well, in verse 4 begins with this idea of clean hands. That's it. It's clean obedience. Second characteristic would be what I think you could call inward integrity. Okay, the person who approaches God doesn't just do the right things. Okay, they do it in a way that it literally flows from a pure heart. They're not doing the right thing because, hey, if I do the right thing, then that gives me power over somebody else. No. They do the right thing because it flows from a pure heart. Characteristic number three, you could label this either love God or loving God. Verse three talks about someone, get the words right so I don't twist it, you know, lift up his soul to what is false. The, the imagery of lifting up your soul to what is false is someone who is giving into or submitting to an idol. They're embracing something other than God. They're giving something other than God the ultimate place in their life. And David is saying, the person who approaches God doesn't do that. The person who approaches God loves God, loves God above everything else. Characteristic number four, and also love people. One of the ways we can hurt each other is through our words. And one of the worst ways you and I can hurt another person with our words is by being deceitful. And so David is saying, hey, the person who approaches God, they don't speak deceitfully. They don't use words in a way that are manipulative or harmful or deceitful in any way. That's who can approach God. Now, David's not finished, though. He doesn't just kind of stop there. He's, he's kind of got momentum, and so he kind of gives the sense. You jump into verse 5. It's kind of continuing. And in verse 5, David says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. If we're not careful, if we just read verse 5 quickly, it may create some measure of tension for us. See, we can read verse 5 coming out of verse 4 and kind of wonder, it almost kind of sounds like if I tick off those four boxes in verse 4 that maybe I earn this blessing or I earn this righteousness, that I can do something to get it. Kind of like if I perform at a high enough level, then God's going to bring good stuff into me. God's going to give me all this stuff. But on the flip side, if I don't perform well enough, then I don't get it. Now we need to be careful with verse 5. We also need to be careful that, partly because I had some conversations with one or two of you about this. I've also had the conversation in the mirror way too many times. It's really easy to get pulled into the performance trap. But before you and I take a bite of cheese off that trap and think, I just got to do really well and God will bless me. I want you to focus in on how does verse 5 end, the final words of verse 5. 
okay? The God of His salvation. What are those words pointing to? Why did David put that expression in? And of course, the way it plays out in our English Bibles and the way it reads is the bottom line. Why there? Why is he trying to communicate? Okay, I want to share with you five observations. Five observations that that, that kind of come from that. The first two are very specifically zoomed in, and then the other three are kind of ripple effects. Okay, so for the first one, zoom in on that last word, salvation. Okay. The word that's translated salvation really has about it the idea of deliverance or to tie it to shipwrecked. It means rescue. Now, important thing to notice about this word deliverance or rescue is this is something that David's not saying, hey, I can do something and then I'm rescued. That's not how it works. The idea implicit in this word, the way it's used throughout the Bible, when it talks about this salvation, it's something has to be done for me. Somebody outside of me has to do something to rescue me. Okay, that's important for us to notice. The God of salvation has to rescue. I have to be rescued. Second thing. This is going to sound very duh right now. Who is the one that does the salvation? Uh, The God. Okay, it's that simple in that sense. God is the one who does the saving thing to rescue us. God is the one who makes us righteous. Now some ripple effects, some other observations, because there is more here that I want you to see this points us to. Here's the third observation, and that is not only is God the deliverer or God the Savior, but folks, you and I desperately need the deliverer. We need God to do His stuff. Scholars are not 100% sure of the context that led David to write Psalm 24. But one of the leading candidates of when they think David wrote this is when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Okay? And the Ark itself was understood to be the symbol of God's presence. It was the place in the tabernacle and then later in the temple where God was supposed to specially reveal Himself. But the Ark of the Covenant was also the place where where sin was dealt with. It was the place of atonement or the mercy seat. And we, we would know as history kind of unfolded from David forward when people, when the high priest would go into the most holy place in the temple where the Ark was, he could only go in there once a year. And he could only go in there with animal sacrifice. I mention all of that because I I don't think David viewed himself as, hey, I'm living out verse 4. I think David understood he fell short of that. You see, Psalm 24 is written in a context, quite literally, where David was recognizing, I can't save myself. I have a problem. Observation number four, another kind of ripple effect of that to help us really understand all of what's going on here is these animal sacrifices that were being done are not permanent. Yes, it allowed the the priest to go in there once a year, the high priest on the holy days, 
on the holy day, you know, that was it. But those things were never meant, they were a temporary provision. They were not a permanent solution. The writer of Hebrews chapter, chapter 10 verses 1 to 4 kind of unpacks that for us when it says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, notice this, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Understand Psalm 24, Hebrews 10, I think are pointing to us, there has to be something more. Psalm 24 has an expectation. There has to be something more. Which really leads us then to observation number five. And there's a sense in which these first four observations kind of line up to kind of point at something. How many of you remember Hogan's Heroes? Some of you are greatly deprived. Or you have been protected. I'm not sure which it is. But there was a Hogan's Heroes time where all of them, all of the prisoners of war, so to speak, were outside and they lined up in a formation the shape of an arrow. And Colonel Hogan, talking to Colonel Clink, turned away from Colonel Clink and said, light them up if you have them. And all the prisoners lit up cigarettes because they were lined up to point a bomber to where it was supposed to go. Arrow, you know, all their cigarettes, all their lights. In some ways, these op- observations are pointing us to one more observation, and that is that we need to seek God. We need something more. It's all pointing in a direction. We need to seek God, which is exactly where David goes in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. David wants us to understand that the blessings of verse 5 and the characteristics of verse 4 come to the people of verse 6. Come to the people who seek God. You say, well, why is that? Why is seeking God so important? Simple answer, because He's the Holy Savior. Because He's the Holy Savior, you seek Him and things flow out from there. And you might say, okay, I get it that verse 5 says He's the Savior and all of that, but that still doesn't fully give me an answer to how do I be verse 4? How could that be true of me? Because I don't think it's true of me. Well, hang on to a second. How is it possible you and I can really go into God's presence? I mean, David said you got to be these things. Just a moment ago, we said Psalm 24 has an expectation to it. And that expectation is really the answer to the how is it possible question. And the answer to the question of how is it possible, what is the expectation, it all comes down to Jesus. Jesus is the answer. I believe David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write in a way that points towards one who would come 
and one who truly would be, verse 4, who would live it out in their life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 25 make it very, very clear that the Lord Jesus, God the Son, the Savior, is sinless. Jesus' life on earth was a living billboard, a living expression of verse 4. And here's a huge thing we need to understand. If we turn from sin to God, and trust the Lord Jesus is our Savior. We are literally united to Jesus. Our life gets enfolded into His life. We sing, my life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what the, well, that's what the Bible verse says. We talk about our life is hidden in Christ. That's what the word of the song was. Okay, we sang that. Why? Because if I trust Christ, I'm united to Him. Part of what that means then, if I'm in union with Christ, is that when God looks at me, God looks at you if you've trusted Christ. Is He looks at us through or looks at us in Jesus. Part of what that means, folks, is that when you and I trust Christ, the Father declares we're verse 4. He declares that we are righteous. He gives us His righteousness so that we literally are verse 4. But God doesn't stop there. When that happens, when the Father declares us righteous, then God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit to work and move in our lives so that the life we live begins to align more and more with the declaration God has on our lives. That we are not just declared righteous, but He is, in that sense, making us righteous. We're living righteous. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working and moving so that we can become verse 4. But please understand, the way it happens, the way we become verse 4, is by heeding verse 6. By seeking God. That, I hope, raises for you some big questions like it does for me first big question is have you sought Jesus then? Have you sought Him? Now the idea of seek in verse 6 really is about the idea of are you going to entrust yourself to God? To put it in terms of this side of the cross are you going to entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus? Are you going to trust Him as your Savior? Have you done that? Second big question flowing out of that is, are you continuing to seek Him? Are you continuing to live trusting the Lord Jesus? That that is the expression of your life. Because God is saying, here's how to live. You live by seeking God. You live by trusting Christ. Where are you at on those? Please, wrestle through those questions. to tie to what we started the service with and started the message with. The God of Psalm 24 is the God who can revive us. But folks, I believe that revival will only happen if people, God's people, are truly seeking Him and truly following Him. 
Folks, if you and I say we love our country, if we truly love our country, if we truly love our neighbor, then we must seek and follow our Savior. There is no other option. You know, it is easy in an election year, and and we're kind of in the midterm election, but it's easy in an election year for you and I to be drawn towards political ideas, partly because the ideas that are being promoted are, are viewed as solutions. Now, let me be very clear. Some political solutions may be good, and they may be helpful. But as we learn in the spring of 2017 in our, Abraham's, in our series on Abraham's life, Human solutions produce human results. They also produce human consequences and at times human complications. Folks, I believe we should participate in the political process of our country. But the greatest hope, our greatest hope, is found in seeking and following the Lord Jesus. And the very best thing we can do for our neighbors, the best thing we can offer our community is that we as the people of God offer to them through God's love flowing through us a very clear picture of the triune God. That what they see from us is a clear glimpse of God so that they then can be encouraged to follow Him what our community and our country and our world needs is for God's people to put Him on display, to make it clear, unashamedly and unapologetically, to declare, here He is, the Holy Savior. Two pictures. Ruling Creator, Holy Savior. What happens when you put those two together? Where is David going? Where is the third picture going to be? Picture number three would be this. King of glory. King of glory. Sort of in some ways where David's building out to is we would see the king of glory. David really, really wants to make this clear. Read with me verses 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Selah. I don't know if you noticed. David seemed to want to underline something there. He wanted to make it abundantly clear that this God we're talking about is the King of glory. Think about that with me for a second. Psalm 24, we mentioned earlier, Psalm 24 we think was written to when David was bringing the ark into Jerusalem. 
the symbol of God's presence coming to be with the people. Now, what I also want you to understand is as time went on and the people of Israel rebelled against God, the nation first was divided in two Then the northern tribes went into exile in 722 B.C. Then the southern kingdom went into exile in 586 B.C. Those dates were beaten in my head by one of my professors who just retired, so in honor of him I had to get the dates right. But while the southern kingdom was in Babylon, they were trying to figure out how do they operate and worship and function without the temple. And so they did some things, and one of the things they did is they kind of would pick certain psalms that they would read every day. Psalm 24 was read every Sunday. There's a very good chance that as the Lord Jesus came in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a colt, coming as the king, Psalm 24 was being read. The King of glory was coming. The God who saves us is the King of glory. Verse 8 says the King of glory is strong and mighty. Going to the cross, the Lord Jesus was strong and mighty. To take on all of our sin, He had to be. Verse 10 says He's the Lord of hosts, which is that kind of idea of He's the Lord over all the angelic armies. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, Jesus told the disciples, Guys, I could call on 12 legions of angels right now in an instant. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. David wants us to know that our King is the King of glory. He is the one who is above and beyond all. He is the one who is the most beautiful, most powerful, most awesome being there is. And He created us. And He saves us. So we can know Him. What should we take home? What should we take home? I want you to notice real quick that verse 6 and verse 10 both end with the word Selah. Oddity of the word Scholars, quite honestly, haven't quite yet figured out exactly what it means. It's often used in the book of Psalms in places where it might be good to kind of just kind of stop and ponder or stop and wonder. I mean, it's used in verse 6 in the sense of, hey, here's this amazing creator. The God who owns us does this amazing thing to save us. Because we couldn't come into His presence on our own. And in verse 10, it it tells us the King of glory comes to us. I mean, the imagery of verse 7 and verse 9 is basically of the King of glory standing outside, wanting and, and willing to come in. The King of glory, the most impressive being there ever will be, ever is. He literally is wanting to be a part of your life. He's standing there waiting. That's something you and I should ponder. That's something you and I should wonder. I don't know what you think of God. But can I ask you to do two things today? One, 
would you ponder that the God of salvation is offering you salvation today? Would you ponder that the King of glory has this incredible strength and power and beauty and He's offering to bring those into your life as He comes into your life. Are you seeking Him? Are you opening to Him? To tie back to how we began the service. Our national history and probably for a lot of us, if not all of us, our, our personal histories kind of give some evidence of His blessing in our lives. We have received some things. As we ponder that, I think that should move us to want to seek Him. Move us to open to Him. And as we think about our national future and our personal futures, we need Him. I pray seeing Him, who He is this morning, would move us to want to seek Him, would move us to want to be open to Him, and would move us to want to encourage others to follow Him. He's the ruling Creator. He is the Holy Savior. He is the King of glory. And He is asking you to seek Him and He is telling you He will come in. Are you open? Would you pray with me? Father, I am struck by the fact that I'm not what I should be as a person. I'm not verse 4. And yet you offer to me, you offer to us your salvation. And you offer us to be able to experience life knowing the King of glory. Father, I pray today you would help us to see you through the lens of Psalm 24. And Lord, I pray that that would draw us, that would move us to seek You and to open our gates, so to speak, to You. Father, You have given us so much to be grateful for and thankful for. And Lord, I pray that we truly are. That our community our country and our world needs to clearly see you. Would you move us to seek you and to be open to you so that we would truly know you? And then, Lord, would you move us by the power of your Spirit in our lives to be used by you to tell others about you so that the throng of people that want to celebrate and honor and worship the King of glory. It's bigger and bigger 
Lord, thank you for who you are. May we live in response to your goodness to us. In the very precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, we pray.